0: As the Beatles sang long ago, look at all the lonely people. I mean, there is a profound truth in that song. It's an ugly one, but it's real. I mean, as Thomas Wolfe wrote, loneliness, far from being a rare and curious circumstance, is and always has been the central and inevitable experience of man. And while we may not agree with all the final conclusions of these modern voices, They are on to something that we all experience. I mean, all men do suffer, and women, from this nagging sense of absence, from this want uh, to belong. You know, all the things that we search for in this life in one way or another is that this desire to find presence over absence, to find community uh, over loneliness or isolation. You know, there's something uh, that, that... always gets me at the beginning of cheers when the song begins, you know, we all want to go where everybody knows our name and they're always glad you came. You know, it's not meant to be a sad song, but there is something about it that is profoundly sad because we all know that want and also know that it's not always delivered. I mean, this is part of our search for meaning. We want to belong. We want to be known. We want to be safe. We have a sense that it should be that way. We have this knowledge that we would want, you know, some part of our life to fulfill that need, whether it be family or friend groups or church or community. And there's something in our collective memory that knows that it once was that way, but we're not quite sure how to get back. And that is humanity's problem. You know, how do we get back to where we once belonged, where we were known and safe when we were one? Well, that is, in essence, what today's glorious text really is all about, that is, as it comes to us in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, I want us to begin at the end, if you will. I mean, this is how the story ends. And I want you to take note of how God's whole book, his whole revelation of himself, how it concludes. This is how the story ends. We stand with John, watching the new Jerusalem, this holy city, descend out of heaven from God, and what do we see? First, you'll notice there's a bunch of things that we don't see. John wants to make sure that we have knowledge of all the things that will not be there. He says there's no temple there, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no lamp, there is no night there, there is no one accursed, there is no falsehood, and nothing unclean enters there. And we see first there is no temple, at least not in the traditional sense, what we would think of as a temple, this building house for God. And he says there's no temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. He says there is no sun because God and the Lamb are the light and their glory is is what brightens this place. You have the presence and the glory of God in the midst of the place, and like the temple of old, God's glory is there, filling the entirety of the city. And the light of His presence fills this new creation with the light of eternal day. There is no night there. The best part is that God is there, that the Lamb is there, is there, that their glory and their presence are always fully on display, so much so you'll notice it says all of the nations start to come up and they bring the glory of the nations with them. The kings of the earth come bringing their glory with them, that all of the peoples of all these distinct different people groups, as we see in the book of Revelation, of every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred, all come flowing into the city their number so great that no man can count them. God and man in this text are dwelling together in a way that we've never seen and only had hints of at the very beginning of the Bible, that time in God's creation where He was present with man and man had access to God. I mean, God and man dwelling together in the days of the garden, of course. But in this day, in the book of Revelation, all of the nations and all of the rulers and all of their works have been brought into the final conclusion of God's world. I mean, listen carefully to the beauty of this language, of this temple city. The gates are never shut. I mean, the doors are, are always open. You can enter at any time. It's 24 hours a day. And everyone who comes can see the face of God and live, because no one unclean is allowed to enter. There is no night, which for us, you know, may seem strange, but if you get into at least the biblical mindset, I mean, night is where danger lurks. That is where the bad things happen, you know. There are monsters out there. You know, that's where wild animals prowl. You know, we live in a world where we have streetlights and electricity, uh, but if you live in a world where those things don't exist and the sun sets, well, that is where the prowling animals begin to do their work, either upon your livestock or even upon your homestead. That's where bandits hide away. That's where those who do evil deeds conduct those misdeeds. Under the cover of night, you know, as your mother probably told you, nothing good happens after midnight. Uh, But back in the day, it was nothing good happens, you know, after sunset, which uh, was a lot earlier. But there's no accursed either, we learn, in chapter 22. The curse that has plagued humanity from the very first chapters of the Bible, from the very beginning of our human history, that thing that has hindered us all life long, has been peeled back, and all that goes along with it, the difficulty of our labors, the death that comes at the end of our days, the brokenness that comes in our bodies, but also in our being and in our relationships, all of that has been rolled back once and for all. I mean, to really understand what John is saying in this text, you have to be able to see life as it's been. And while you may not have the theological terminology for it, you've lived it. You're living it right now. You know the pain of this world. And so, while we begin at the end, I want us to see not just how the story ends, but how the story was. I mean, it began somewhat like we see in Revelation. Do you know that man's life began in a temple? And that's what the garden was. If the temple is just the house of God, that's where God dwelt. And he met with, you know, a man in the spirit of the day. We called that temple the Garden of Eden. But God was there and his door was always open. And man, who was a king, according to the text, he ruled and had dominion. He was God's regent in the world, could meet with God at any time. Nothing was unclean. Nothing had yet been touched by the curse. But of course, that didn't last all that long. And ever since sin has entered the world, that has not been the story that you and I have known. We've never experienced those early realities. Our story has always been one of banishment and exile and the loneliness and the brokenness that comes from those things. You know, our life has been one of darkness and danger and uncleanness and curse, all those things. That will vanish. The door wasn't just closed to God's presence in the book of Genesis, it was seemingly slammed shut with angels guarding the way back in so that man might not enter. I mean, we built towers to the sky in Babel, trying to somehow storm the gates of heaven and find our way back to God, but nothing that man has ever attempted has worked to date. We cannot find our way by our own efforts into the presence of God. And so God acted. He put a place on earth where He promised that He would be present. And while I can't go through the whole history of that from Jacob onward, we see at least its its main fruition in what we call the tabernacle in the temple of the Old Testament, this, this building that we hear referenced again in the book of Revelation. And in that building, he placed the Ark of the Covenant inside this square room called the Holy of Holies. And that Ark of the Covenant, he says, is where he places his feet on earth, where God promises to be present in a special way among his people. And you find there, of course, two angels guarding that place just like you did in the garden where he dwells in between the cherubim and he placed it in the most sacred room in what we call the tent of meetings, the Holy of Holies. was where God in his mercy said that man could meet with him. Which sounds like really good news. Until you think about it, <laughs> you know, T. David Gordon references the tent of meeting, and he says it would have been rightly better called the tent of non-meeting. And why, you, why would he say that? I mean, think about this reality. God has set up his temple on the earth, but only one nation in all the world is called to worship there. All other nations excluded. In fact, if you want to be a worshiper in the temple, you have to convert into this one nation that God has chosen, and of that one nation, there is one tribe that is allowed to serve within the precincts of the temple, and of that one tribe, there is one man who is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and he gets to do that one time a year with no small amount of fear as he does so. I mean, you heard of his clothing. They had to put bells on his garments in case he dropped dead. They, you know, all of a sudden they're not hearing any sounds. They would pull on the rope that was tied around his waist and drag him out of the Holy of Holies, knowing that things had not gone well when he met with God. Now, one time a year, they would, after elaborate offering of sacrifices, this priest would pass through the front entrance where there were angels either inscribed on the curtains or carved into the doorposts. He would have to walk into the Holy of Holies, which of course was also guarded by angels that were carved into the fixtures, and then he would walk into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, only to see there more angels guarding the way. Everything he did in this place where God was present, said to him only uh, was set before him only as a reminder. You're banished from here. You can't really come in here. And if you do come in here, you cannot stay. There are signs at every step that say, do not enter, beware. You know, those who come here may not leave here, at least leave here well. The way to God's presence is closed. To almost everyone, and even the ones who are allowed in are reminded that they're not really welcomed, at least not for long, and not without a whole lot of bloodshed before they do so. And the whole story of the temple, and the whole story of Israel's national history, is one of banishment, estrangement, and curse, Every time someone gets near to God and exposes who they are, they just get sent further and further away, which is why they can't stay in the Holy Land. It's why they can't enter into the holy place. Time and time again, exile and banishment, removal and distance. And there's no way to solve the problem. It seems like this ongoing, endless epidemic. But that's not how our story ends. It ends somehow with the nations gathered, with gates that are never closed, where none are uncleaned, when all see God face to face, where His name is on each of their foreheads, just like the high priest had on his forehead, holy to the Lord. Every single member of this new nation has that same inscription on their forehead so that they can enter into the holy place and meet with God whenever they desire, without fear of repercussion or estrangement. I mean, the whole place, the whole New Jerusalem, you'll notice, is a square. The whole place is the Holy of Holies, and every member there is a high priest, and all can enter at will. Shalom, the very peace of God, covers the whole of the creation. The whole paradise is the fruitful garden of God as that river flows through and the tree of life blossoms. I mean, that is quite a change, at least from those long, long chapters of the Old Testament and then this one short chapter of the book of Revelation. So how do we get there? I mean, how does it change? You know, if we saw how the end will be and if we see what is or what has been, we also need to see now, at least this morning, what is because of Christ, how the story is now that Christ is. You see, your story as a Christian, as a human, whether you know it or not, begins and ends at a temple. It ends with us dwelling with God. That's the whole reason you exist, is that you might be able to dwell with God, that you would be His and He would be yours. I mean, that's what Easter and Ascension and Pentecost really are all about. And you may not realize this, this is the 6th Sunday of Easter. It's probably not on your mind. Kids, you could milk that if you want, if you want more candy. 6 weeks of Easter before we get to Ascension Sunday next week. And to understand Revelation 21, you have to understand the resurrection and all that it means. You'll notice what John says, the temple itself is the Lord. And the Lord Himself is the Lamb. You see, the reason the doors can stay open at all hours, the reason that everyone can come and go as they please is because Christ, who was the temple, the very presence of God, tabernacling among us, was torn down. Even as He said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Christ says and makes plain that he is the rebuilt temple that all the prophets were waiting for. John says as much in Revelation 21 and 22, the lamb is the temple. Rebuilt and established once for all, even now. But not only is he the temple, he is the lamb of God that was slain once for all. And who lives And when that sacrifice was finished and the veil of the curtain of the temple that was guarding the way to the holy place was torn from top to bottom, God was saying once and for all, there is access now between you and I through the flesh of my son, you can enter into my presence. And it's not something that we have to wait for when the last day comes. That even now, because of His ascension and the sending of His Spirit, we have access presently to come boldly before the throne of grace, the shed blood of the Lamb that has gone before us and secured our way. Because on that cross, the righteous died for the unrighteous, and the Blessed One took the curse as He hung for us on that cursed tree. It's not a coincidence that when Jesus died, The temple dies, and the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, never to be raised again. And even if it should be, it will have no significance because the temple has already been raised and rebuilt in the resurrection of Christ the Lamb. And even now, the Spirit of the risen Lord, every Lord's day, as we draw near through the blood of the Lamb, welcomes us in His name. He brings to us all of the benefits of the sacrifices of that lamb. He blesses us with nothing less than the presence of God in our midst, even this morning. While that may all sound distant and far away, I want to at least conclude with this. While there are still dangers out there in the life that we live, we surely don't dwell in uh, Revelation 21 and 22 where there's no more darkness and no more danger and no more uncleanness and no more accursedness. That instead infest the very fabric of our lives. And we feel it even as we gather here on this day. I mean, our own uncleanness threatens to undo us, at least in our own minds and consciences, before a holy God. But as you gather here this day, because that lamb who is the temple reigns even now, there is no danger of you ever being shut out there. The doors there have been opened and cannot be shut because of what Christ has done on our behalf. There's nothing here any longer that can undo the finished work of the risen lamb. And because the lamb who is the temple has died for you, his blood covers you. He was raised as a rebuilt temple for you. He sent His Spirit, the very presence of God, dwells in you. So that you now are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you now as a church are living stones being built up into a house, a dwelling place of God. You are so holy right now that God dwells in you. I mean, if you think of the Old Testament story... And how frightening it is to even come close to the dwelling place of God. God finds you so satisfactory because of the cleansing blood of his son. He is willing to make his abode and his house in you and finds nothing offensive there. And so because of that, he invites you even this morning to boldly draw near. To receive once again the benefits of that sacrifice to come and claim Christ as Lord, and he says that anyone who does that at any time, he will never cast out, that they're always welcomed and ushered into his presence. And he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, that Christ is with us even to the end of the age, that he is going going to be the one that brings us to that final vision of revelation that seems so unfathomable to us, not just because of the way the world is, but because of the way that we are. And yet this is the promise that is sealed both in his blood and in his resurrection and in the fact that he is the ascended king who is also the lamb. God is with us in Christ. He is in us by the spirit. And because that sacrifice, the lamb reigns forever, your forgiveness and your holiness stands forever forever. If it's dependent on Him, He's not going anywhere, and His sacrifice does not change. And so God calls you this morning, even as you come to His uh, table, to come boldly, to come to a place where at least the ones who matter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, know your name. And strangely, uh, beyond our uh, understanding, they're delighted. He is delighted that you've come. And so may you find your hope and rest in Him this morning, and may you feast on the risen Lamb as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray.